Welcome back to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. As advisors to some of the wealthiest families in the country, The Rate of Change is a podcast designed to help you in the pursuit of building long-term wealth through the insights of some of the brightest minds in asset management. I'm your host, Murdoch Gaddy, and in today's broadcast, I'm speaking with John Forward, the Chief Investment Officer at Lowell Resources Management. Lowell manages roughly 50 million Aussie under management, it's a listed investment trust, which invests in junior domestic and global mining companies. Um, they currently allocate roughly 13% to new pre-IPO opportunities, have greater than 10% cash, and the remaining is invested in listed mining companies across uranium, copper, natural gas, oil, nickel, lithium, and a large percentage in currently in gold and they currently run a top-down, bottom-up strategy, so that percentage allocation is constantly changing. As of recording, the Lowell Resources Management Fund has averaged over 10 years 14.2%, over five years 27.9% per annum, uh, average over three years 8.4%, and 12 months 14.1%. In relation to the S&P ASX Small Resources Accumulation Index, they've consistently uh, outperformed them in that period. And most interestingly, in the past 12 months, whilst Small Resources Accumulation Index has been down uh, 9.8%, they've been up 14.1%. So please, everyone, remember that uh, you know this is a podcast for entertainment purposes only please listen to the disclaimer at the end of the rockcast if you want to learn more about the fund uh, please reach out to them directly or speak to your um, advisor so with that being said i hope you enjoy this conversation as much as i did so sit back relax and enjoy John Forward, welcome to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Murdoch, thanks. Uh, great to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Whereabouts in the world are you right now? I'm actually in North America. I'm sitting in a hotel room in Toronto, Canada. Uh, what's over there right now? What are you heading over there for? Uh, look, I'm, I'm doing a bit of a swing through. Um, I've been to Vancouver, which is the home of North American uh, small cap miners. Um, and now I'm in you know, Toronto, which is the home of perhaps uh, larger North American miners. And then uh, I'm heading down to Miami for a Mines and Money conference in Florida uh, in a couple of days. So, um, and then I'll follow that up with a, a brief side trip to uh, look at a copper project in South America. So making a, um, making a, a you know, good trip of it. That sounds like fun. Hopefully you get a nice hockey game in. Well, look, John, um, which is interesting where you were, but why don't we start off by telling everyone a little bit about, you know, who is John and how you got into the wild world of financial markets? Sure. Look, I think um, I have to blame my father. He's a, he's a geologist and um, had me doing field work with and for him from a, a pretty young age and uh, it, didn't, it didn't put me off. So I became a, a geo worked um, around the place, Australia, Africa, Indonesia, um, for a few years, and then uh, joined a, a group. I, I went to the dark side, joined, got into the financing side of things, 
and joined a group out of South Africa called Rand Merchant Bank, which was a uh, fantastic experience. It was there for more than 15 years in a group called RMB Resources. And uh, we did um, across the financing spectrum. So we did equity, quasi what we call quasi equity and project financing and hedging for the junior resources space. So um, had some fantastic experience there. It was a very successful shop. Uh, finished up there in 2015 and then 2016 joined Lowell Resources Fund. Um, and I've been the CIO there for the past eight years. So what exactly does Lowell Resources Fund do? Look, it's, it's, a, it's an unusual beast. There's, there's not many um, institutions, if you like, that do what we do, which is really focus almost solely on the junior resources space. So we, you know, we, we, we're quite broad in a very niche sector, right? Um, we're, uh, um, we, we do pretty much any commodity you know, in terms of um, metals and mining and oil and gas that you can think of. Um, but we really try and focus on the, on the junior sector where we see the biggest upside potential, potential is. So when you say uh, you're only focusing on the juniors, does that mean um, they're only uh, you're trying to get into them seed or you know, pre-IPO um, or were you looking to allocate to these companies when they're listed? Yeah, both. And what's, both the, and what's the percentage? What's the percentage in the portfolio? Yeah, so we, we've, we've got a fairly broad mandate in that sense. Most of our portfolio is ASX listed, but we have a number of stocks listed in the Northern Hemisphere on the, particularly the Toronto's TSX Venture Exchange. Uh, we've got one or two on the London Stock Exchange. And then we've got a number that are coming through at various stages pre-IPO, so seed seed investments. And um, yeah, we've got um, a reasonable exposure to seed investments, even though in general we allocate less cash to them because they are illiquid and, and much, much harder to get out ahead of, um, ahead of a listing. So yeah, at the moment we're around 13 to 14% in, in seed or pre-IPO investments, some of which, um, and I, you know, I think we might discuss this later, um, uh, relatively close to a liquidity event. So, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting space at the moment. Well, that is definitely going to be the fun part of the chat. What are your thoughts on commodities? What stocks are you looking at? You know, because um, it's been a wild world of commodities the past five years. But before we uh, dig into that, let's let's just uh, uh, get through the mechanics and, you know, how the funds are structured. So why don't we start there? How, how is the fund structured and why did you choose to be, why did they choose to be listed compared to an unlisted structure? Yeah, look, the, the funds um, you know, structure has evolved over time. Um, it's got a long history, the Lowell Resources Fund. It, it's, as I understand, it started back way back in the 1980s as a unlisted unit trust for National Mutual. And then um, when AXA took over the National Mutual um, organisation, uh, it decided this fund was basically moribund. It, as I understand it, had... Um, you know, exposure to, you know, the big end of town in terms of mining um, at that time, CRA, um, BHP, Western Mining, likes of those companies were in the portfolio. And at that point, the current management group bought, bought the management company from AXA and really 
turned it around completely and, and started to look at the junior the junior sector um, you know where we where we see the upside is so from that point to 2003 to 2018 we ran it as an unlisted unit trust um, in 2018 we decided to to list it and the real driver for that was the fact that we could then have permanent capital so as an unlisted trust you were subject to redemptions redemptions and subscriptions so in a real market downturn that can really hurt um, if you're getting redemptions in a falling market and you're having to sell uh, your portfolio to realize cash in a falling market that can be very tough so now that we're listed um, the uh, you know the the way to trade in and out of the of the of the units is is on the market. It's listed on the ASX. So if you want to buy a, a unit, you can just uh, do it through your broker. Um, and I think we're currently trading around a dollar thirty a unit. Uh, the the downside of that, of course, is well, not of course, but most listed investment vehicles trade at a discount to their underlying NAV, and and typically we're trading at about a ten percent discount to our underlying net asset value. Glad you covered that because I was just about to ask that. Um, uh, you know, we've had many uh, fund managers on uh, in unlist, sorry, in liquid or uh, in liquid or unliquid assets. And um, one thing which I find quite interesting about your structure is, considering commodity prices whip around so much, um, it gives the ability to, you know, obviously see counsel speak to your advisor, but it gives the ability, you know, if you have a view on a particular commodities to potentially come in and purchase something at a discount, um, you know, when people are being fearful and then, you know, take advantage of when people are being greedy, uh, which is quite, which is not exactly normal when looking at, you know, the fund managers that deal in the resources space. The majority of them are currently unlisted and then do mm. deal with heavy um, redemption cycles um, when, you know, the wind isn't necessary and the commodity cycles sail, mm. which I definitely find quite interesting. Yeah, look, I think, you know, well, we think it's a it's a good structure for a, a volatile sector. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we avoid those, we avoid those redemptions, um, uh, particularly, you know, down, down points in the cycle, which, which can be, can be very painful and, you know, not just for, um, you know, uh, investors in the fund, but for the fund Companies. investments that, uh, you know, um, see their share price crater um, as a result. And, and you know, the, the flip side of that is that um, if share prices are getting smashed, then we have, uh, you know, if we've got cash up our sleeve, we have the ability to take advantage of that um, when, you know, you know, the old Warren Buffett be uh, be greedy when everyone else is is fearful adage. So um, that's that's a that's an opportunity that um you know comes around every cycle. Yeah, I can definitely see why it's happened, and it's a it's an interesting uh, structure to be able to deal with that volatility. So with with the fund, what's currently the the size of the fund? How much money is currently? In yeah, the fund? look, it's a small fund. It's got uh, roughly fifty million dollars of assets under under management. Um, you know, we've grown that from, you know, uh, probably uh, less than $20 million since I've been there, um, net of paying out uh, distributions. So that's probably another aspect of the structure that I should mention. Uh, there are a lot of listed investment, LIS listed investment companies out there, which um, 
do pay dividends, but that's general, that's discretionary, obviously, as a company. Uh, as a trust, we're a listed investment trust, which is a little bit more unusual. Um, we don't have any discretion. All our taxable profits have to be paid out to our unit holders. Um, so, yeah, we've, um, we've done a, um, you know, paid distributions over the last four years and, and the outlook for this year is that we'll pay a, a, you know, a historically relatively high distribution again in 2024. Um, had a couple other questions, but let's touch on the performance and the dividends. So what's the dividend been since you just mentioned the distribution? Yeah, look, um, so this... This past year, we you know we pay a, a distribution in July, August every year. We paid a, a seven, roughly a seven cent uh, distribution, um, and uh, this coming year it looks like it could be you know significantly more than that as a result of um, some significant profits that we've been able to take in this financial year. Yes. And the performance of the fund, um, and obviously it's volatile. Yep. So uh, let me let me phrase it this way: when when you have you know an uplift of um, you know <laughs> uh, free money being pumped in, COVID that type of thing, how does that um, perform? Uh, you know, correlated with the markets and the resource space. And then you know when commodity cycles come off, you know how correlated is that? Just because the thing is, if we look at say the performance as an average over five years, it's very very difficult. Uh, it's probably misleading as well, I'd, I'd say. So how would you explain the performance and how it performs with the cycles? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, uh, because, we're, because we're exp- we invest in companies with significant exploration potential um, and a, you know, a, a real exploration success can happen at any point in the cycle. Uh, and and um, you know we, we aim to, well, we hope to have exposure to to that success, um, you know, with at least one or two companies per annum. Then uh, it means that we're actually fairly uncorrelated to the rest of the market. Um, you know, obviously a, a, a rising tide will lift all boats, but you know, for example, last year um, the uh, um, small resources index. Um, was fell by ten, nearly ten percent on the on the ASX, and we were up fourteen uh, percent. So strongly uncorrelated to to the market, which um, I think is a is a, a really uh, good attribute. Um, you know, over the last five years, we've done twenty eight percent per annum net of net of uh, inclusive of distributions, but net of fees. Um, and you know, I just like to. You know that that's actually the best performance of any listed investment vehicle in Australia over five years. And I sorry, you know, this is the best of all of them across the board. Well, according to you know uh, Bell Potter and, and Aud Manette, um, you know universe that they cover, you know it's it's strongly outperformed any other any other listed investment vehicle in there. Well, the only the other coverage. one which I could think that would be in the echelon or probably beta would be, say, Hyperion Global because they've got the Magnificent Seven in the tech space. And that's been yep. volatile. So that's yeah, probably could, yeah. up there as could, well. Could have been. Um, but uh, look, I just, you know, sort of not, not to brag too much, but um, it, it's, it's, it just demonstrates the potential that, you know, returns that can be made in the resources space, you know, and, and you know, in many 
many areas, um, resources is very much the ugly duckling. Um, it's not sexy. Um, you know, everyone's piling into AI or, or whatever. But, um, you know, the fact that we've had such strong performance um, shows that there can be some fantastic returns to be made from, from this space. So the other thing which um, doesn't get talked about a lot, but I want to mind getting into it, is with the, the fund size. Um, since you're dealing with a huge amount of small uh, caps, some of these raises, which people are familiar with, you know, some of these companies might only be raising $2 million, $4 million. It's not like someone's going asking for $50 million. And then the problem is, you know, as we've seen time and time again, you know, from my background, you know, being a broker on these transactions is whenever you get a good one, everyone wants it and then you get no allocation. And then when it's you know, not too certain, you get way too much, right? So yeah. how do you, um, <laughs> so position sizing is always interesting on the unlisted stuff. But the other question I had is um, what's the fund size's capacity before it becomes um, way too big to manage and you can't get the allocation sizes you want? Yeah, look, you know, um, $50 million fund, will, you know, the average investment size is probably somewhere between, uh, you know, half a million to a million, a million dollars. Uh, so we do have a, a, a reasonable portfolio and, and spread the risk. Um, you know, and that's, uh, I think that's important that, um, you know, the average investor in the street might be, you know, might hear about one or two, um, you know, interesting resources, stocks, but, but, they are extremely risky, right? Um, so, you know, I think that's what we offer is a um, portfolio approach to a to a high risk but high return high return sector. In terms of you know allocations, um, you know when the market's strong, I think um, yeah, you know uh, you need to be you need to be nimble, and that uh, and our um, Investment process allows us to to be nimble and make sure that we can react quickly to opportunities. And I think most brokers that we deal with through the cycle, you know, recognise that um, you know we we are there through the cycle. We're there in the in the good times, but we're also there in the bad times when when no one else is um, you know answering the phone. So uh, yeah, they they tend to try and give us our, our allocation, particularly in companies that we've we've supported. Over a number of years, and 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 we we do tend to do that. Um, you know, one of our best stocks has been a company called Predictive Discovery, which we backed. You know, uh, all the way from IPO, I think in 2012, and we're still, you know, it's still one of our significant holdings, and we participate in pretty much every placement through to its major discovery um, a couple of years ago. So, um, yeah, we try and we try and support our existing portfolio. So since we're discussing portfolio, um, I definitely want to get into how the cake is baked. What is the percentage weightings? Let's discuss the commodities first and then the companies. What is the percentage weightings towards specific commodities? And in answering that question, do you find yourself, you know, looking forward and going, you know, lithium's had its run. It might be a while before lithium comes back. So you decrease the allocation in the, in the lithium or do you just diversify and have it, and then essentially one performs, one's not, and then it's like, uh, how do you manage what's in the percentage weightings in the portfolio? Yeah, look, um, we do. We have a sort of a, a top down and a and a bottom up approach. So uh, we do try and um, uh, manage the portfolio to increase exposure to sectors which we are. Uh, 
strongly positive on and, and decrease exposure to sectors where we where where, it's, where we think the going is going to be tough. So, you know, for example, we're um, 20% into base metals, not including nickel at the moment, and most of that base metal would be copper. Um, and, and nickel is only 1% of our portfolio. Um, and that's because, you know, not unlike many people, we're, we're positive on copper and we think that nickel, um, you know, is is having, or obviously is having an extremely tough time and, and probably will continue to do so for at least the next six months and, and possibly possibly longer but it's a you know nickel is a very interesting space and we might be able to touch on that a bit further um you know we're a 34 percent exposed to uh gold and and precious metals at the moment including pgms uh and and that will look that will always be a substantial part of the portfolio because we are um you know in junior resources and gold will always be a a major feature of um feature of junior junior what junior companies target because it's relatively um easy or not easy but um the expiration process is 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 well known for gold um and the capital costs are not immense for for gold companies um you know you don't have to build a railway you don't have to build a port you know like you might have to do for coal or iron ore or, or something like that um so yeah it's you know it's it's it can be within the capacity of a junior company to develop a you know, hundred thousand ounce per annum gold operation from from scratch. So yeah, so that's that's thirty four percent. We are pretty cashed up at the moment. We've got about sixteen percent in cash, which is historically high for us. We you know we're not unhappy with that. We see that times are tough and apart from a couple of sectors a couple of commodities getting tougher at the moment so um, we see opportunities both to support our existing portfolio companies and to and to add to add new positions at, at you know relatively deep deeply discounted valuations and that's part of the reason why I'm in here in North America at the moment is um, to uh, follow up on and, and, and find some new North American opportunities so yeah and then um you know battery uh you know we did have a very um, substantial exposure to to lithium last year um we've sold down a lot of that a lot of that position and and battery primarily lithium but also graphite um you know that's eight percent of the portfolio at the moment so um uh, that's been reduced reduced substantially uh uranium is another one perhaps just touch Briefly on, you know, we got four percent of the um, funds by value exposed to uranium. We think there's a lot of um, upside there through some of those stocks, which we might be able to touch on. Um, and uh, yeah, we're looking to to add to our uranium positions. And finally, oil and gas is something that um, the fund has always had an exposure to. Um, we've got some you know, exposure to both oil and gas in Australia and and offshore. Uh, I think in a lot of times, you know, it, it does, uh, we've got about 10 or 11% exposure to oil and gas. A lot of time it does um, provide a bit of a counterfoil to the gold price. You can see gold and oil moving in opposite directions um, reasonably often. Um, so, yeah, we, we do like to keep, um, keep exposure to, to oil and gas as well.
this is the type of conversation that I can have just a couple of drinks with and be for the next three hours. <laughs> it's just like, it's like, where, uh, yeah, do, well, where I, do we begin? I this think it's closer like, to a beer o'clock for me than it is for you, Peter. <laughs> Nine a.m. in the morning. What's the time there? Uh, we're coming up to 20 past five, I think. Yeah. Oh, well, that's all right then. Um, yep. oh, where do we begin? All right, okay, well, let's let's begin with um, the uranium story because the uranium story I found so fascinating. Like there's a particular people I followed like a couple of years ago that said you need to get into uranium because these stockpiles that have been built up on the, on the yellow commodity have been sitting there for years, slowly depleting. And now they've depleted. And, and please, I, I don't remember the numbers. I kind of know them offhand. But isn't there something like about 180 or 190 million tons of demand? There's only about 140 or 150 million worth of supply. So they're literally 40 to 50 million of the yellow commodity short. And um, over the years, uh, you know, which, and I would love actually to interchange this with um, the cons- uh, the discussion of, you know, people just don't want to stick money into building mines when they don't feel like that commodity is running. And then everyone kind of rushes in at the last moment, as we saw with lithium, and then pushes everything up, and you have an oversupply mm. problem. It's just like this self fulfilling prophecy that happens every single cycle of the commodity. So, yep. um, and it, what, what's happening with um, uranium? And do you want to give an example with a couple of, um, I, don't, I don't know, maybe one or two in the Australian and what's happening offshore and you know, international sure. companies? Yeah, look, um, you're right, Murdoch. It's, it, it is um, a bit of a broken record, I guess. Uh, you know, and you see it, it's frustrating that you see it across, across commodities. And it's happened again here in uranium where, you know, you could see the situation coming from, a long time away and, and, you know, a lot of the uranium bulls like Johnny Borshoff or whatever, you know, did start to sound like a broken record post Fukushima. Um, you know, there's not enough new supply. There's growing demand. Um, there's no alternative, um, you know, the alternative, you know, um, source of supply like, you know, the, the reprocessed highly enriched uranium that might have come out of the, you know, former Soviet Union, um, you know, back in the 90s and 2000s. Is not there anymore, um, but at the same time, the um, the the um, power utilities who you know have got nuclear energy reactors um, weren't supporting new new supply to any great degree, um, and and so the problem has just built up and built up, and and finally you know we've we've had push came to shove last year, and the uranium price jumped over a hundred percent, you know back you know and. Now it's over a hundred bucks, hundred bucks a pound. So yeah, look, you're right. Um, there's there's a there's a, a massive shortfall, uh, massive deficit, supply deficit at the moment, and you've got the two big guys, um, the two elephants in the room, which is Cameco out of Canada, which is the second biggest producer in the world, and then you've got Kazatomprom out of uh, Kazakhstan, which is the OPEC of, um, in fact, it's you know double OPEC, it's or triple OPEC, it's more than thirty percent of world supply. So OPEC came out in January and earlier this month and said, "Look, you know those expanded production targets that we talked we talked about uh, last year, we're, we ain't gonna we ain't gonna get there. Um, they've got um, problems with um, supply of of reagents, and I think they've got other problems in terms of well field um, ISR performance. So um, they're going to be well short of what they said they would be able to do in terms of ramping up their production." Cameco, um, you know, have actually said, "You look, we we think we're still going to hit our targets," which was a surprise to everybody. Um, but they're actually buying in the spot market, 
So, you know, second biggest producer in the world is actually buying uranium rather than, you know, um, selling, you know, um, having enough production to meet it. Uh, so, you know, all the, all the uranium at the moment is, as I understand it, is spoken for. Um, and new supply is not available just at the flick of a switch. It's, it's a very long, very tortuous process to bring a new uranium mine online. So, um, yeah, that, that, uh, that supply deficit. And, you know, we're talking about 50 new reactors in China over the next, I think it might be decade or so, um, which is ma a massive amount of um, new reactors. And then you're seeing, um, uh, you know, pronouncements out of COP, COP26 that countries like France and um, the US want to triple their nuclear energy um, uh, production through to 2050. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, the forces there are, you know, um, sort of almost inexorable that um, uh, the price is going to grind higher. And it's a relatively small market in commodity terms. So um, that leads to potential volatility. And we've seen, you know, we saw a significant jump from 80 bucks a pound to over 100 bucks a pound um, late last year. And, um, you know, uh, you know, the pundits are saying, well, we could easily see it go from 100, 120, in, you know, in, in a matter of weeks. And, and, and um, you know, then there's blue sky beyond that. Yeah. Um, everything you're saying is so interesting. Like, what was that? 13% cut to the world's largest uranium producer, which is nuts. Uh, and then I heard another fund manager say that when they were studying um, commodities, that commodities, when you get a wind behind them, have a tendency to, from the absolute bottom to the peak top, like lithium go up 10x so i'm just looking at a chart from uranium which was peak bottom in what's this 2016 i think that was about 20 dollars mm, so about 18, now it's at, yeah sub 20 yeah about 18 so now it's at 103 so a bit you know depending where you take that from so say the average peak bottom's been roughly 25 dollars. now it's you know up four x from the bottom um yeah it's quite interesting <laughs> Mm. And the, the yeah, other thing which is quite interesting on the uranium story as well is with the um, war with Russia and Ukraine, um, seeing it probably, probably one of the main reasons why lithium and car batteries are kicked off is the European Union and NATO are trying to wean everyone off Russian gas. And as a byproduct of that, well, you know, that's, that's the gas side to get batteries, but you can't just go straight to everyone's in electricity by 2050 you need gas for various things uh, so the best solution is essentially a nuclear nuclear plants and the technology's improved so i can't remember the numbers but how many um is it france and the uk as well that are bringing nuclear reactors online to kind of solve that problem uh, the uk somewhere? definitely have got um uh, a new one gigawatt uh reactor on the on the drawing board um i'm not quite sure exactly what stage that is at um, but uh, yeah, look, there's many countries who are talking about um, you know, adding adding you know, nuclear uh, capacity to their their power fleet. Their How long does fleet. it take to build a, a reactor? Like, say uh, that one in the UK. How, I don't. I generally don't know, right? Because this everyone goes. Yeah. You hear the headlines. Okay, we're building one. Okay, that's great that you're building one. But how long does that actually take? Oh, from look, announcing you know, it look, to coming along. Look at the last reactor that got built in the US. It took um, a lot. You know. Uh, I think something like 10 years um, from, from permitting and um, there were some massive cost overruns. So that, that is the downside to this, that um, you know, in the Western world, permitting is, is very, very difficult 
And, um, you know, with cost escalation that we've seen in projects of any sort um, recently, uh, you know, you, you, and these are massive projects. So, yeah, you, you've got to be very wary of um, cost, cost overruns. That may or may not apply so much in China. And China is definitely the country which is building out its reactor fleet um, faster than than anybody else. So um, I think uh, the my expectation is that um, we'll see we'll see much more reactor capacity put in place in China than anywhere else over the next next ten years. Yeah, so interesting. So if everyone wants to go, you know, clean by twenty fifty, which I don't think is probably going to happen, or the pipe dream. Um, the, well, the gas is what, well, as you, as everyone says, the you know the, the transition um, point. But even gas shortages, right? You know what, Origin Energy, you know, front sold all our forward, forward contracts, what nine dollars, whatever the contract was, and you know offshore. So we're kind of running out supply even on the east coast. So you're seeing places like the Beetaloo Basin being built up, right? Mm. Um, but the problem is you get greenies and everyone's saying, we don't like it. You know, fracking's bad. But So I'd love to hear your thoughts of what's happening in the gas market. And um, I suppose maybe one thing also to cover as well, um, the Australian gas exploration is completely different to the American, say, with the Macellas Basin. But people are hearing, oh, it's the same. But people don't understand that the ownership of the land is different in America than it is in Australia. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on... Um, what's happening in that volatile space. And for listeners out there, the gas price has kind of gone from like $2 to 9 then back down again. <laughs> so it's, it's another incredibly volatile commodity um, with potentially a shortage. Yeah, it's, so and, I'd love to hear it, your thoughts. It's very um, regional, right? So, you know, the gas price in WA, you know, which is a you know market unconnected to the East Coast is is quite different to the gas Gas price and gas market on on the east coast of Australia, and then you know the gas the gas market in the US is is quite different quite different again, and the drivers are, are quite different. You know you're seeing the US become uh, in a pretty short space of time the largest LNG exporter in the world, um, and then Joe Biden has now sort of put a pause on any new permits for gas export plants in the US. Um, you know, in Australia on the east coast, definite you know massive squeeze, and and one of the big drivers as, as that has been you know the um, Bass Strait gas production absolutely falling off a cliff. Um, you know, it used to be one of the mainstays of east coast gas, and you know in the next few years, you know it's it's just depleting at an extremely rapid rate. So you know the gas price in um, you know eastern Australia, you know you're hearing uh, twelve dollars. 14 bucks, you know, even sometimes more than that, a, a gigajoule of contracts, contracts being written written recently. Um, and in WA, you know, they've got the gas reservation policy um, for onshore gas, uh, which is a, a real hot uh, political potato. Um, but uh, you know that, yeah, as you said, they've gone from two bucks to nine bucks, nine bucks um, in a relatively short short space of time. You know, they used to. You know, uh, Mark McGowan used to sit there like a Cheshire cat and say, oh, look, our system's fantastic and it's protected, you know, um, local consumers. <laughs> and then, you know, it all came came back and uh, uh, bit him, bit him, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I get Betty regrets saying that. So, look, you know, um, the, the, you're just on your point, um, the ownership of, of minerals, you know, in the US is quite different to to Australia in general, Australian minerals are owned by the Crown in the form of the individual states. 
in the US in general, the, the minerals and, and gas is owned by uh, individual um, pri private ownership, um, which may or may not be the same as the, um, the owner of the surface rights. So uh, look, each system has its challenges. Um, uh, there's um, possibly uh, greater resistance to new gas projects in parts of Australia than there are in parts of the US. Um, but, you know, you can have very, very disparate ownership of minerals in the US and have to chase down dozens of people who've got small percentage ownerships in various, you know, various gas fields um, to tie up the rights. Um, whereas in Australia, you know, in general, there's only one owner and that's, that's the state. So, um, look, uh, but, and the other big difference, I think, is infrastructure. Um, infrastructure, you know, US has got gas pipelines running all over the place. Um, whereas Australia, uh, you know, there's a number of projects which would be online already if, it ha if, if they had better access to uh, pipelines. So putting in new pipelines is really critical to developing new gas, particularly on the, on the East Coast. The infrastructure spend in some of these projects is so extensive. I, I often kind of wonder whether or not, you know, Australians building out these large gas projects, we'd be better off just using, you know, bonds, like 30, 300, half a billion dollar bonds and just get it done and continuously mm. going back to the market and devaluing the um, shareholders value with raise after raise, you know, coming into like, you know, F. <laughs> TF yep. raises and yep. dilution and dilution and completely destroying the value of people before, but people with massively deep pockets out of the States, you know, just sit back and relax and just keep taking the stock. Um, what's with gas? Um, do you, is it, do you have much offshore? Is it um, in Australia and are they, are you owning um, producers or you're in the exploration <laughs> side? Uh, look, look, we've got to get a bit of both. You'll see in our portfolio recently, we've, Got back into well, sorry. Uh, Karoon is is a is a Karoon Energy is is as an oil <laughs> producer mainly, um, but we do have um, you know offshore. We've got interesting um, uh, CBM play in Mongolia called TMK, which has got what we think are some of the best coals in the world for, for gas production, um, and they're on the you know not far from the Chinese border, uh, so there is potentially a, a, a ready market. Or their gas. Um, here in Australia, you know, we've got exposure to things like Comet Ridge in Queensland with their Mahalo project, which is in joint venture with Santos, uh, and their Mahalo North project, which they own 100%. So um, that, you know, has a relatively um, quick time frame to production if they choose to take it. Uh, I think it's about 17k tie-in to the nearest pipeline. Um, but, uh, you know, for a bigger development, they're going to need to put in a, a much larger diameter and, and longer pipeline to connect to the down south um, to, the, to the major East Coast network. Um, you know, what else? Uh, you know, um, 3D Energy is, is one that's exploring offshore Victoria um, with, in joint venture with Conoco. That's a, that's a really, that's a, that's a pure exploration play. But, um, yeah, some... some relatively high chances of success on some some fairly substantial targets which uh, hopefully will be drilled in 2025 so yeah look you know we we have a mix of um, exposure to to oil and gas and that's just a, a, a couple of examples of our investments 
That's quite interesting. Um, I noticed you didn't mention um, the Beetaloo Basin and uh, you probably know the history of that a little bit more than I do, but to my understanding, the four largest uh, gas deposits in the entire world are Russia, Saudi Arabia, Miscellus Basin. And um, you know what, I think the Texas guys came over in the 70s and identified um, the Beetaloo Basin, but everyone was like, no, nah, no, nah, it's too dry. There's no gas there. But recently, um, it's been incredibly expensive. It's been a uh, political nightmare with the Greenies and... Mm. All that type of, of business. So I can understand why investors have shied away from the chaos, but I'm just curious in your thoughts with what's happened to Beetaloo because it was the last year the government gave them uh, uh, one of the companies up there a $1.5 billion grant to essentially build out a port right next to the Japanese uh, giant up there as well. Mm-hmm. It's an impex. Impacts, yeah, 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 and then as you were discussing with the infrastructure spend, like people don't understand the cost and the amount of money associated required to get this gas piped, you know, into the Northern Territory, then down to Queensland. Mm. Um, so I'd love to. So two questions there. Um, love to hear your thoughts on the Beetaloo, and then secondly, why aren't you in the Beetaloo, or is it more of a situation how you like the Beetaloo, but you just don't think due to the cost of something that. You know, the timing's right. I'm, I'm very interested to hear your mm. thoughts on the Beetaloo Basin. Yeah, look, um, Murdoch, I think perhaps the short answer is we think that the Beetaloo is um, for the big boys and, and we're, we're focused on the, on the juniors. Uh, and, and, you know, as you touched on, um, the reasons for that are the costs are uh, very high. You know, the, the drilling costs are extremely high and then the infrastructure costs are also extremely high and generally we we you know want to um, invest in things which can be within the reach of uh, a junior company that might only have a market cap of less than 200 million so it's just what it's just what uh, just what we do oh, so that, that's said, what it is because that's what I was asking because Tam Boren as an example you know pre-raise had um what 250 million market cap so you're saying mm. 200 million dollars is the yeah look it's not it's not hard and fast obviously and, and and hopefully you know all our investment companies will blast through the 200 million um market cap uh, valuation and you know go into you know a couple of billion um and and we, we may or may not hang on to that point but um uh yeah you know we're, we're generally looking um you know in the in the what you might call the micro micro cap micro cap space but the beetaloo look there's no doubt is is fantastically endowed with gas it's just you know as i touched on earlier you know the us has got um fantastic infrastructure in place and the beetaloo you know is is generally devoid of it yeah so i hear what you're saying as in it's a great opportunity it's going to take a long time so the point you're making is if you go find something then there's no infrastructure around then you have to go get the money to build that and it just becomes Mm. such a long and the question is do you want to play that game no, that makes yep. a lot of sense. Um, okay, well, since you mentioned, um, you know, uh, gas and oil, what are your thoughts on what's happening in the oil? Yeah, look, um, it's a it's a pretty interesting one, you know, and, and as I touched on, um, it's an interesting sort of uh, counterfoil or um, in, in some cases can be decorrelated to um, the rest of the commodities market. So, for example, Oil prices obviously has a big feed into um, inflation and inflationary costs. Um, so if you see the oil price jumping, then you you may see um, you know, inflation jumping, and then you may see, uh, or you're likely to see interest rates rising, and you're likely to see in that case, um, you know, pressure on non non yielding stocks like uh, such as the spe- speculative uh, sector that we're in. 
Um, and you're also likely to see pressure on things like the gold price. So um, that's why we like to have, or I like to have um, exposure to both gold and oil um, in, 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 you know, for that, for that reason. So, you know, we're seeing, um, uh, you know, China is now, I think the biggest consumer of oil, um, 13, 14 million barrels a day out of a total of around a hundred. Um, we're, um, we're seeing, um, us production rose, um, or didn't, you know, rose last year, despite the rig count actually being flat to down. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of efficiencies extracted, extracted in the Permian in the US and the US is, uh, I think, um, one, if not the one off, but the biggest producer in the world now, um, uh, um, which almost matches the Chinese consumption just sort of coincidentally. Um, so you've seen, you know, I, I think the Chinese economy, and this is my perception based on, you know, the the iron ore price and the record imports of iron ore, um, the, the copper TCRCs and the record imports of copper, the um, record amount of electricity consumed in China last year. I think the Chinese economy is actually going pretty well. And, and, you, know, and, and you know, added to that, the record imports of, um, of oil. So um, I think you may see, and OPEC are actually forecasting this, that you will see, you could see growth in oil demand this year. Uh, Russia is, as a major producer, is not forecasting it will add any production this year, may come off slightly. Um, so you may see the oil price, and we've seen it rise. I think it was, you know, WTI was uh, 79 bucks on, on Friday or, or thereabouts a barrel. Um, you've seen it rise. Um, if OPEC, you know, continue to have production discipline, um, and in particular the Saudis, then you could see the oil price, you know, continue to continue to strengthen. Um, and yeah, you know, obviously that would be good for, for oil producers. And just as a side comment, you know, the oil market or the development of new oil fields and, um, capital spend on, uh, you know, the oil business has, has really, really been, um, a laggard in the last decade. We're seeing big boys like BHP and Shell start to reinvest, but they, you know they did have a number of years there where they were saying, "Oh, you know, we're going to spend our capex on um, solar farms rather than our own, you know, core business." Um, but we've seen that we've seen that start to change over the last uh, eighteen months or so. So yeah, but that's um, can take a while to flow through. So I think you know, um, as we stand today, you know, we we may see um, more upside than downside to the oil price. Yeah, that's very interesting. And last one I just wanted to get into is um, what's happening um, with Dr. Copper. Um, yeah. And then I would love to discuss, you know, uh, you know, uh, how the IPO market's kind of slowed down and, you know, when do yep. you think it's going to be back again? But first of all, what's happening with Dr. Copper? Yeah, look, um, you know, Dr. Copper, it's been a bit of a head scratcher. It's really been range bound between sort of US $3.50 and $3.80 a pound for what feels like quite a you know a long time, most of you know 2023, um, and you know we're still stuck there today. Whereas, um, uh, yeah, you know, all forecasts are saying you know there's there's a copper squeeze coming and it could come. You know, a lot of forecasts have said oh it's going to be 2025, but it could actually be accelerated. Um, you know, to, we could see that this year. So why hasn't the price? jumped you know out of its range bound trading 
look, there must be, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a substantial market, 25 million tonnes of copper a year. There must be some stockpiles that are off warehouse um, that, you know, uh, we can't see um, that are being, you know, being consumed. Um, but, uh, you know, warehouse stocks are, you know, generally pretty low. Um, so, look, the fundamentals are very, very good for copper. I'm, I'm not, um, you know, telling people anything that they, they don't know. Uh, it's really interesting. I saw an analysis last week of two of the uh, largest new uh, sources of copper production out of um, South South America, Cuyaveco and QB2. Both of those, you know, if, if you're looking for a as an investor by the companies that um, have built them, uh, you know, if you're looking for say a 15% IRR, you know, return, um, both of those are underwater. Um, you know, one needs four dollars fifty a pound, and one needs six bucks a pound to hit that that fifteen percent IRR. So, you know, at current levels, there's there's the incentivization for new copper production is is really lacking. And you know, I say this all the time: every project that gets delayed or deferred adds to the the the, the future deficit. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, it's it's something that we, along with many, uh, you know. We, we like the sector. So any project, uh, that, that comment there is fascinating. Any project that gets delayed or, you know, postponed, you know, adds to the problem with supply. Mm. So we're seeing this uh, everywhere where, you know, pre-COVID and then run up, money was pouring in, you know, everyone's finding new projects, you know, doing raises, everyone feels rich. Um, but now, you know, speaking to clients, investors, institutions, family offices, everyone's kind of feeling poor <laughs> to an extent. So where that may have risked capital before, um, you know, they're finding safer houses, you know, I don't know, high-end property lending or property developments or something equivalent that mm. could tick along. E, and then the other thing which I'm finding very crazy is across the board in most asset classes, some of my colleagues have said that the deals they're seeing right now are the best that they've seen from a valuation standpoint. And I heard a fund manager say the other day that last year, or the IPOs from last year, so the year before, have all come off like on average, like forty-eight percent, was fifty-eight percent, something quite large. So valuations is very, very interesting. Um, bit of a statement there, but I suppose my question on the back of that is, what is happening in IPO land? Um, I read an article you wrote that said, um, what was it? Last year saw little to no IPO action with only three junior miner companies listing on the ASX in the past month or two. One was gold, one was rare earths, and one was lithium Kali metals. Yep. So my question after all that as well is, what do you think is going to get the IPO market going again? Look, um, it's probably Jerome Powell. <laughs> you reckon? Uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, that's a flippant comment, but... Um, you know, uh, interest rates are a major factor in, you know, uh, uh, support for speculative investment. You know, if you can stick your money in the bank and make make five percent um, versus, you know, uh, as you mentioned, you know, I, you know, IPOs which you're actually going to, you know, lose money on um, from the 2022 a lot of the 2022 IPOs. Why wouldn't you put your put your money in the bank and you know, earn a very safe uh, five five percent or something like that? So, um, you know, if and when interest rates come down, particularly in the US, uh, then you will see in 
you know, in my my view, you will see increasing support for the more speculative investments, and in particular, you know, well, as an example, the the junior resources exploration sector. So yeah, look, you know, hopefully um, that's right. That second half of 2024 is going to see uh, moderating. Um, well, the first half of 2024, we'll see continued moderation in, infl- in inflation. And then second half of 2024, we'll see interest rates start to start to fall. And yeah, so in that case, you know, we could see a much stronger IPO market on the ASX in, in H2 2024. Fingers crossed. So if any IPOs are coming out, um, you know, with the, what we've discussed with the commodities, um, I suppose, what is your um, outlook on, you know, if, if a deal came out, what's the commodity to be in? Yeah, uh, look, you know, I think, you know, we've, we've touched on a few of them. You know, uranium looks good, uh, particularly, you know, on the, you know, the more exploration side of things. Um, I think a number of the uh, advanced, you know, developer uranium companies perhaps ran ahead of themselves a bit in 2022 and, and, and 2023 was more a consolidating year. Um you know, copper obviously is something that uh, you know every, everyone is is interested in, and we're definitely seeing uh, a bit of a groundswell both in North America and Australia of interest in in copper. Um, uh, gold will always be be there, and I think you know that that also will would benefit from from falling falling interest rates. Uh, other sort of more esoteric ones, I think PGMs. Look pretty interesting in 2024. Um, there's um, the prices have fallen a lot. Uh, you know the big producers in South Africa and Norilsk in Russia, uh, particularly for palladium. Uh, you know supply is falling. There's a deficit there, and you know, as if EVs um, uh, or if um, uh, hybrids and, and plug-in hybrids. Are preferenced over pure EVs, then that needs you know auto, auto catalysts um, and and you know PGMs are, are um, that's a major consumer of PGMs. So you know platinum palladium look look pretty interesting. And we touched on nickel earlier. I think there's there's probably no rush, but um, you know the major use of nickel still is not batteries. It's stainless steel. And Russian, uh, sorry, Chinese production of stainless steel was a record last year, um, and I think it's you know uh, going to be strong again, again this year based on how we're seeing the iron ore price. So um, you know while there's still a surplus of supply coming out of Indonesia through the new the new technology and nickel laterites, I think um, you know there's a chance that in the second half of 2024, for what is historically the most volatile of metals. Um, we could see nickel um, start to start to rebound. So, so that's an interesting one to watch. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I suppose I was just thinking to myself then, um, from what you said before, all these plays in Australia and the resources sound um, fantastic. You find a side, but again, the problem comes down to um, the ability to, the ability to finance them. Um, so I spent a bit of time in the past uh, couple of years speaking with um, German bankers regarding um, corporate uh, bonds. So I'm just wondering, you know, there's a thing happening over in, you know, the Saudi and 
Europe where they're using essentially bonds where you can forecast the life of a mine in 30 to 50 years and they're essentially reverse engineering it, right? So they know exactly the money required to get it out, what's essentially there, and then they just get the job done instead of having, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G on the... <laughs> On all the raises, you know, coming through, which, yep. you know, anyone listening that's doing the brokering probably is going to shoot me for this. But um, um, <laughs> from uh, your position, who's been doing this for a long time and seeing it, um, I'm just very curious um, to hear your thoughts on the relationship of, say, um, corporate bonds uh, in resource companies. Because I've had conversations with people over the years in Australia, either they're not familiar with it or they're familiar with it and they've never really seen one work in Australia. But I keep seeing all these large, capitally-intensive projects that look mm. fantastic where shareholders go into it. It sounds exciting, two, three years, and then it falls over because, I don't know, rivers run dry. So do you think a debt option via a, a bond, a corporate bond, is appealing for Australian miners here? Or do you think, I don't know, what, what's your opinion? Yeah, is look, it balanced? For um, uh, some. Look, you know, that, that's what uh, Twiggy Forest did. Um, with FMG, um, you know, uh, access the, if you like, the junk bond market out of the US to finance Fortescue into its into its first production, and um, you know it was a it was a nail biting biting thing with when the when the iron ore price fell, but um, you know that's uh, you know he has become the third force in, in iron ore, and hats off to him. So um, for you know, substantial projects, you know, as you mentioned, with you know, 30, 50 year mine lives, um, I think it can work. Um, you know, you don't, you've got to get the interest rate right, obviously. Apologies, I should say as well, these bonds begin at um, either euro or US dollar at half a billion dollars because the cost of building one for 50 yep. million US is the same as half a billion. So the, the projects aren't small. Yeah. Well, the life Indeed. cycle is so, not small. Yeah. You know, um, I guess that the issue is, you know, a lot of um, mining projects, you know, they 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 start out with relatively short lives of, you know, maybe five to ten years, um, but a lot of them do keep going um, for for decades. Uh, they find more and more reserves, keep on exploring. So um, uh, that's not ideal for putting in place a, a long-term bond, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and you're right. Look. Development capital is very, very hard to find at the moment. In fact, you know, there's a number of developers that I can mention that you know are sitting on. They've got a feasibility study tied up with a bow. Um, they've got their permitting all done. They can't get the you know, and they might have a, a strongly positive NPV. They can't get the um, development finance, um, you know, uh, because um, you know providers of that capital have seen massive cost overruns and, and, and schedule blowouts um, in many projects over the last few years due to, due to cost escalation and also due to a shortage of labor, uh, or, you know, that's, that, that's linked, um, a shortage of labor in the industry. So, um, yeah, you know, as come back to that point before, every project that gets delayed or deferred is um, feeding into, uh, you know, the future deficits. And um, we're seeing a lot of that at the moment. Well, you're definitely going to be seeing a lot in your trip from <laughs> top to bottom um, with hopefully a stop in Miami and, uh, you know, hopefully you're trying to uh, find the high-end cigars running around that beautiful city. Yes, um, I've got that on my on list. Uh, if I've got a bit of spare time, I've got um, some cigars to buy from a, uh, a friend of mine who's a cigar aficionado um, back in Melbourne. 
Um, so hopefully we'll be um, uh, sharing a Monte Cristo um, together when I get home. Fantastic. Uh, last question I'd like to finish on is, um, you know, what keeps you up at night and uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> Look, you know, I think the thing that keeps me up at night is is the, if you like, the, the bets we've placed on what look like really good um, exploration prospects. But, you know, exp, you know um, as a, a, a very good geologist, I know Chris Cairns likes to say, you know, Mother Nature's a bitch and she's had a lot of time to move the furniture around downstairs. So, even the best the best drilling targets can um, come up uh, come up dry, uh, so you know um, that's that's something that uh, keeps me keeps me awake at night. Um, and what gets me up in the morning? I think it's probably the same thing. You know, the excitement of the potential for one of our portfolio companies to make a make a big discovery. Well, the only constant in life is change. So with that being said, so if anyone out there wants to learn more or change up what they're doing, um, you know, what's the best way they can uh, reach out to you to, I don't know, broaden their oh, minds or learn more? Sure. Look, um, you know, if uh, people are interested, um, please contact us via our, our website. Um, get, on the, get on the mailing list for the the monthly report, um, you know, that, that covers our, you know, individual portfolio, but also tries to, um, you know, address what's happening in in commodities markets. Um, so, yeah, that's a, hopefully people um, have a What's your website? Uh, it's um, lrfm.com.au. Yeah. Lowell Resources Funds Management, LRFM. Fantastic. All right, John. Well, it's a pleasure having you on, and um, you know, <laughs> time for either a drink or to head to bed in your side of things. And my day's <laughs> just getting stuck. And I started. I think the market's opening in two minutes, so uh, we'll see what the ASX has in store for us today. All right, fingers crossed. Thanks a lot, Murdoch. Good fun. Enjoyed it. All right, have a good one. See you, John. You too. Cheers. expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation and before any action you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York head to our website www.yorkwealth.com.au.